right. Thanks, Chris. I'm happy to be back in Nehemiah. So if you um, have your Bibles and like to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, we are going to finish up chapter 4 today. And um, we are in verses 9, and we're going to go all the way down through verse 23. And so basically where we're at in the story here is Nehemiah's work was getting ridiculed by his enemies. Um, And they were furious and angry that Nehemiah was trying to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem with the intent of reestablishing the commonwealth of Israel because the Israelites had been in exile um, in Persia uh, for many years. And God used Nehemiah to go and finish the work uh, that had been started about 100 years before that with the temple being rebuilt. And so the temple's rebuilt but the wall, it's not a fortified city. And so Nehemiah is going back. And of course, everybody there is like, what is this guy trying to do? And so the enemies rise up, rose up, and now we're starting to get sort of into a possible physical altercation here with, uh, well, actually with Nehemiah uh, in the story. And so there's great discouragement, <clears throat> but God is the one who fights the battle. So I want you to, to, as I read through this, it'll be up on your screen. Um, I want you to keep that in mind because listen how many times that Nehemiah refers to that. And the very first verse in verse nine is, uh, but we prayed to our God and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. And that verse 10 is like, if it's in your, if you have an NASAB or some of the newer translations, you'll see it's bracketed like a little poem. I'm not sure if that came out up there, but in the Hebrew, burden bearers and we ourselves are unable is a rhyme. So this is a, they're trying to say this is sort of an idiom that was getting said because these guys were in really, really bad shape. And then verse 11, listen to what the enemies say. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. And this is what the enemies of God want us to do. Stop the work of the gospel. Stop the work of God. Verse 12, when the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Even your own people sometimes do this, right? Well, they, they don't want us to get hurt. Protect you. Get out of here. But Nehemiah says, then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. And when I saw their fear, Nehemiah saying this, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officers, the officials, I'm sorry, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that, it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan Then all of us returned, each to the wall, each one to his own work. Verse 16, from that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held spears and shields, the bows and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Verse 17, those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and on the other holding a weapon. 
I have a book that's called Gun, um, Gun in or Bible in Hand, Gun in Pocket. And uh, it's a it's a memoir of uh, of the 17 and 1800s of the people, you know, uh, the uh, circuit riders where they would ride from horses from church to church and preach. And um, they were very much about self-defense. But anyway, verse 18, as for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built Why the trumpeter while the trumpeter stood near me, <clears throat> guy holding a trumpet, I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding the spears from dawn until the stars appeared. And at that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. And this is, it's funny because in the army, this is what you do. Every hour, there's somebody guarding, guarding the barracks. And that's called fire guard duty. And so that way, 24 hours a day, there's always someone on guard. The bad part is when your fire guard duty is like two or three in the morning because you got to wake up and you got to do it. And if you were really bad in the army, the drill sergeant would make sure that you had fire guard duty for the time you went to bed from 10 to 12. And then he'd put you back on again at two to three. And then he put you back on again from five to six. So you didn't get any sleep that night. And that, of course, never happened to me, but I, I saw people doing that. But anyway, this is the feel of, of what's going on now. They are really just sacrificing everything. And why I love the book of Nehemiah so much, <clears throat> and I'll tell you, if we teach through this book and, the, and you guys don't capture this, I'm going to knock myself in the head because here's really what I want you to see from this book. <clears throat> Nehemiah is the book of Nehemiah is like a metaphor for us building for the kingdom of God, building towards the new creation. God is saving us for a purpose and he's calling us to come to him and to listen to him and to trust him and to obey him. But it's not just for that in and of itself. It's because he wants us to come alongside of him with that work. And so when you read Nehemiah, I want you to put yourself not only as think about the metaphor, but even Nehemiah is like a metaphor of a, of a, of a true Christian, of a true believer. We, we talked all about it all up, up until this point about how much of a man of God he was. And why was he such a man of God? He just trusted the Lord. He trusted the Lord. And that's what he's going to do, I believe, that's what he's doing in this passage. And, and so as Christians, it's, it's, you know, one of the parallels here is like, well, what are you saying? Are, are we to fight as Christians? And that's what I sort of want to talk today about. How do we fight as Christians? And of course, I'm referring not just to physical, because that, there may come times where that may happen. Or even if you're in the army, in the military, and you love the Lord, and you get deployed into a war, is that something biblical? <clears throat> and so even on, when you look at that, but then when you look at our spiritual battle, it's the same thing. See, whether it's a spiritual fight that we're in against spiritual enemies the same tactics are used, or the same, I should say, strategy should be used as it would be if you were out on the physical battlefield. 
And so that's what I want to ask you now. How do you fight? When, if you were put in a situation like this that Nehemiah is in, an unexpected situation. I mean, he can't go anywhere. His back is, is really up against the wall. I know when we think about it in the world, people say, well, if you're, going to, if you're in, in a fight, you know, you want to try to get out of the situation. And I agree with that. If you can avoid a physical conflict, you do. Some people say, no, if you're in a physical situation, you know, take the first punch or make the first move, you know, do it that way. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think the only time, I'll just say this right out now, is the only time physical violence should be used is if it's at the very, very last resort. And, of course, according to God's plan and his strategy. And that's what we're going to talk about. <clears throat> so basically, Nehemiah now is, one thing I love about him here, I mean, he's not only does he understand who he's fighting, but as we look through this, and as you heard me read this, he is depending upon God for this battle. First, what did he do? What was the first thing he did in the book, in the very first page of the book in chapter one, he prayed, right? After he got, he heard about his brothers in Jerusalem, his heart was burdened. He prayed, he fasted, he wept. He went to God first. And that's the first thing we have to do. First strategy in fighting against our enemies, whether they be spiritual or physical, is do what Nehemiah did here. Verse nine, but we, what? Prayed to our God he just didn't just sit there after he prayed. He prayed, and then what did he do? He set up a guard. And he put the guard by the lower end of the wall, so that way, as the enemies, they would be coming up from the south. And so he loaded people down at that spot. And of course, where the gates were, where the walls weren't uh, fixed yet, he put people there. So that would intimidate the enemy. They would say, oh, wow, look at all these people coming up. So Nehemiah was being a sort of a, a, a war general here or a, a captain or somebody at least there. He's organizing and preparing. But first what he does is he goes to God. Go to God about the fights and the battles that you have. Go to God first. Go to God first. I know that seems so Christian cliche. All right, well, tell me something I haven't heard before, Pat. Go to God first. Let me write that down. It's just, you know, it's novel. No, but see, it's not about just going to God first. It's about going to God and putting complete reliance on what it is that he tells you to do. And that usually requires waiting. It usually requires some sort of waiting. So to, to have your full trust in God, I'm going to you, God, this person is coming against me. This guy is an adversary. Show me what you want to do. And you rely on God. And that's what Nehemiah did in verse 9. He sought him out. And that's what we have to do, but with complete reliance. And see, this is the meat of trusting God. If you really want to know what that means, just say, well, Pat, give me the meat of this. Like, what can I do to trust God other than just pray. I mean, I'm still worrying. I'm still, you know, calculating. Well, that's the thing. That's the key of trusting God. You're in complete reliance on him with whatever the result is going to be. And that's what trusting is. Trusting isn't going, oh, I'm praying to God about this. 
Yeah, and I'm going, you know, I'm giving it over to the Lord and it's so hard to do that. And it is hard to do that. But again, it's a spiritual muscle you have to work out and exercise and it becomes easier. But you have to completely rely on him for the results. Now, Nehemiah is sitting in a, in a battle situation. He's stinky. He's, he hasn't changed. They haven't washed. They're not going back to the camp. They're standing outside of this wall and they see their enemy there who could who would destroy them. I mean, there's, you know, it wouldn't even have been a real fight. And he said, you know what? God sent me here. God put it on my heart. I can't back down. I can't back down. I have to stay. But Nehemiah, 10 times they're telling you, they're going to come up from every place. Everywhere you turn, they're going to be here. In other words, you're not going to be able to run. They're going to be, there's not even a fort. You can't even go behind the walls that you already built. They were only halfway up. Nehemiah said, no, I'm trusting in the Lord. And he went out and he told his people, come on, remember who our God is. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He's great and awesome. And go out and fight for your brothers, your wives, your sons and daughters. And your houses. You see this? There's this split, right? There's this. Fully trusting God, he's going to win the battle. It's his battle, but get moving. Get in the fight. It's not just about trust the Lord, he's going to do it. You know, let go and let God. No. Trust the Lord, go to the Lord. I am doing this 100% for you, God. I know I'm called to do this, and I am not backing down. How do I go about it when you go to the Word of God? And I think that's what Nehemiah was really, really looking at here. He knew the word of God, not sure what access he had and all those things, but he certainly quotes a lot or mimics and models some of his prayers and his actions after the prophets that were before him and the kings that were before him. I love some of the kings of Israel. Uh, We were talking about King Asa uh, last Wednesday, if you were here for the Bible study. Um, and just a, a, an amazing king who was a man of God who trusted in the Lord. Um, also, Hezekiah was another one. Hezekiah was surrounded by the Assyrian army. Surrounded. The Assyrian army had just wiped out northern Israel, took them into exile, and destroyed Samaria, destroyed all of it. And then the king of Assyria comes down into Judah into Jerusalem and Hezekiah didn't know what to do. Hezekiah went to the Lord. This is what he said to his people in second Chronicles 32, seven to eight, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the King of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. Imagine that the Assyrians were feared because they would torture their victims. They would peel their skins. I mean, I can't even go into some of the things these guys would do. They were true barbarians. Like worse than whatever we watch or whatever you see on TV, they try to always emulate those times. Like, no, these guys were just, they were true warriors. And here Hezekiah's like, ah, don't worry about them. <laughs> Here's what he says. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. Where does does that sound familiar? The one who is with us is greater than the one that is with him. 
With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. That's what it says, right? What does 1 John 4, 4 say? He says almost, he's, he's, he's echoing this. He says, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And this is a context of the antichrists. Notice the antichrist plural. Those that were against Christ. They were false teachers. They were going out bringing a shame to, to Christ's name. They were perverting the gospel. And John tells him, don't worry about that. So this is, yes, very relatable to Satan. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. He that is in you, God is greater than Satan. But he that is in you is all greater than in the world. The people of the world, the people that are against Christianity, they're against you for your beliefs. They may be against you trying to live a holy life or against you trying to do things or stand for righteousness. So he's saying, don't worry. He who is in you is greater than them. He is going to fight the battle and win for you. And I could go on and on and on through all these different kings that sought the Lord during battle. It's so simple. So simple. God doesn't say, hey, I wanted you to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and then do this and then do that. No, he says, I just want you to come to me first. And then I'm going to give you the victory. How easy is that? And that's what King Asa did. King Asa, we talked about this in 2 Chronicles 14. You should read, if, you, if you'd like to read 2 Chronicles, read uh, 13, 14, and 15 to really get the whole story. But uh, Asa was uh, against his, his enemies, and he went out to meet them. This is uh, chapter 14, uh, verses 10 to 13, 2 Chronicles. Says, so Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zapatha at Mershah. And then in verse 11, then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, now he didn't, he didn't go, well, should we go, should we not? He went in faith. Let's go out to the battlefield. Really? Yes, the Lord is going to be with us. He pulls up with all of his cavalry, whatever it is he had back then, his whole entire army, and he stops and he prays to the Lord. He says, Lord, there is no one beside you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength, meaning them. Asa had no strength. So help us, O Lord, our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. The Lord did it. That's who they were fighting against, the Ethiopians. He routed them and caused confusion and he brought them right to them. And basically they were able to wipe out this gigantic army. It says in 13, Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. And so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army. And they carried away much plunder. So Asa, you're thinking, wow, he's got it made, right? I mean, he, got, he understands now. Knucklehead, all you got to do is go to God, right? And Asa's like, yeah, I got it now. But don't you know, he, he makes a dumb, dumb move. Two chapters later, and this often happens with us, right? We trust in the Lord, God gives us victory, and then immediately our flesh causes us to get prideful and causes us to think that we're good and that we don't really, well, we're not denying God at that point, but we, we get this like sort of confidence now, right? 
And this is what happened to Asa, because in a couple chapters later, he didn't go to God. He went to King Aram, the king of Aram, I'm sorry. And he said, hey, can you help us? Can you please, uh, you know, give us, uh, give us a hand here? And then what happened was, was Hanani, the prophet, came to him. And he said, because you've relied on the king of Aram and not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. See, what was going to happen was, was Asa was, got, instead, of, he, instead of going up against Aram, he made peace with Aram. But meanwhile, God was going to help him and deliver him into his hand as well. And then and the prophet says, were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an, an immense army with many chariots? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. And here's the context, guys, of this verse we all know. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his, in full reliance. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. You see, this is, this is what we have to get good at doing. We have to get good at, we have to slow down and not have knee-jerk reactions when we are confronted with our enemies and we need to go to the Lord with complete reliance on whatever the answer or result is. And then we need to take that action that whatever is godly and biblical and appropriate in that situation, God will give it to you and then you will take that action. When we do not fully trust God, it goes in this same way as King Asa. So Nehemiah gave the battle to the Lord. It was his fight. But he also, like I said, he also expressed this full faith. He, he told his, 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 whole, his people, he rallied them up. And then he rallied them up again in verse 20. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. You see, why I think this is so important, again, we need to put ourselves in the position of Nehemiah. Trust in the Lord, okay with the results because he's in the middle of a, a battle that he will lose without God's help. And then what does he do? He rallies others. He expresses his faith. Your faith and your trust in the Lord is contagious, just so you know. When somebody sees you living for the Lord, especially other believers, you inspire them. When people see you um, expressing the gospel, I can't tell you when with the, with some of the best me, uh, talks and conversations we have when we're out on the boardwalk is Christians that come by and say, you know what? Thank you for doing this. I was so encouraged to see you guys here. Wow, this is so great. I'm going to pray for you. And um, they walk away, you know, I, I, thanks for encouraging us, right, Rob? And, and, and yet they're now encouraged. And sometimes they'll come back. Hey, can I have two or more of these? I, I want to give a couple out as well to somebody. Where some people go, hey, I'm already a Christian. I, I don't need that. I'm like, well, then take it and give it to someone. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's cool. You know, they think if they take it, they're going to like, people are going to say, you're not a Christian. I don't know. But he expressed this full faith. He expressed that God was going to win for them, that God was great and awesome, that God would frustrate the plans of the enemies. You see, that's what the funny thing is about when God is on your side. He doesn't always just take out the enemy. 
Because you, you, there was never a battle here. He just frustrates their plans. And you can't do that to your enemy necessarily because you'll probably cause more friction and more problems. But God frustrates their plans. So you can go to God with, again, when you have a, a spiritual battle that you're fighting or even a physical altercation or even a war that you see that's happening, we pray that the Lord's justice will be done, but God frustrate their plans. Frustrate their plans to do us harm. And that's what he does. And, and this is all through the Bible too. In, in Exodus 23, 27, God says to Moses, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. An enemy turning their back and going this way. They want to, they're coming at you, but now because you've committed and relied on the Lord and you're okay with whatever the Lord is, give, is going to have, you're giving the results to him and the outcome to him, he may just turn their back and, and just be gone. And he does this on the, on the national level. Psalm 33.10, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people because there's no going outside of God's will. And we see on, and Moses too, here's another one that God would also, he says, he will go and fight for them. The Lord your God goes before you and he himself will fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. That's Deuteronomy 1.30. He will fight the battle. Now we see this trumpet. Anytime you see the trumpet in scripture, it has to do usually with war. With the, it's, it's, it's called a war cry. Soon as you would hear the trumpet, that there, there may be multiple trumpeteers, or one here, one you know, maybe a half a mile down the road, or however, however far that noise could travel, and they would one would hear it, the other one would blow it, the other one, the other one, the other one. So the whole nation and the whole land would know, and they would know where to rally. And so he put this guy, this 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 guy with the trumpet right next to him. And he was probably on his horse going around looking and seeing, and as soon as they hear that trumpet, they were gonna all rally to that one spot. He didn't say, trumpeteer, what are you doing here? We don't, God is going to fight the battle for us. We're cool. Go put that trumpet away. No. See how he's still causing us to go out and act and still causing us to go out and take a stand? And this war cry, we, we hear about it and we see it in Joshua. He used it, obviously, when, if you know the story, when the walls fell down at Jericho. But I love it in the, in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, they both mention the trumpet that will sound when Christ returns. See, the Lord is a man of war. That's what the psalmist says. <clears throat> God is a man of war, I'm sorry. And that is not the psalmist. It is Exodus 15, 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That means he is a strong and potent and famous and eminent warrior. That's what the commentary said. I thought that was really cool. Blessed be the Lord God, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. We read that uh, uh, earlier when we first, when we first came out. <clears throat> Nobody here heard it because you guys just came in. But uh, 
we do, there, there is stuff going on here at 11 o'clock. I just want you to know that. From like 11 to 11.15, we are worshiping, we're preaching, we're doing stuff. So get you, catch it on video. Okay, but yeah, so see, David, he was the, one of the greatest warriors in the Bible. One of the greatest generals. He was amazing. And he was one that had a heart for the Lord. And he gave everything to the Lord, right? He made some mistakes and things like that, but still... It was God who trained his hands for war and his fingers for battle. God wants us to fight. And when we do, we have to do it according to him and for the right reason. And obviously with a clear conscience, you know, the Ten Commandments. We we all have heard of the Ten Commandments. If you haven't, um, Exodus 20, I believe, is the first uh, mention of them. But the Ten Commandments are God's moral law, okay? God's law of what is right and what is wrong. And the whole entire Old Testament laws, all the laws, the 600 and some, all these laws are an expression of those Ten Commandments. They don't contradict each other. That's where they come out of that morality that's laid down there. But oftentimes when we look at the Ten Commandments, we just say, you know, worship God and him alone, have no idols, you know, remember the Sabbath, um, honor your father and mother. And we go down the line of all the commandments and then we say, well, these mean this. But this is God's moral law. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Don't kill. Don't murder, I should say. Don't lie, don't bear false witness, don't covet. But you see, all of these are a basis for morality. And especially the sixth commandment, which is do not murder. I always say murder now because I said do not kill one time and I got a lecture from the pastor that was at the church that I was preaching. Just get over here. You said kill. And he wrote it down. It's true because it's not a sin necessarily to kill, but it is a sin to murder, to kill with the ill intent. You, you follow me there, right? So if you go out and kill an animal and eat it, you're not violating that, any of the Ten Commandments there on, on the surface. But if you murder, you are also, that, that, is, that is a sin, as we know. To kill will take life. But there's also in every commandment from the first to the tenth, there's two sides to it. So don't kill or murder is also, it also means to do the opposite of that, which is what? Protect life. Yes, protect life. So that's our obligation, is to defend life. Every time I say life, that thing goes off. Um, there's a couple of them around here. That's why it smells so good in here. And so this is, that's why you have to be, there's, there's one of my, one of my favorites is, uh, one of my favorite old time preachers, I think I skipped over this, let's see, is um, Gilbert Tennant. You know, we have such rich Christian history around here. If you've ever been on Tennant Road and you drive down Tennant Road to the old Tennant Church, that was Gilbert Tennant's uh, father's church, <clears throat> okay? And that was William Tennant. And William Tennant Jr. was the pastor there. 
and he entertained guest preachers such as George Whitfield preached in that church. Uh, Jonathan Edwards preached there. Jonathan Edwards preached right in front of the Hall of Records outside in downtown Freehold. They would gather out to hear him speak. And Gilbert Tennant, during the Revolutionary War, which also was the Battle of Monmouth, was literally right behind the Tennant Church, so much so that if you go there for the tour, you can still see a musket ball, I think, in the floor or in the, in the pew, and there's a blood stain there and so forth and so on. <clears throat> but Gilbert Tennant, <clears throat> during this time, was going around church to church trying to recruit people for the Revolutionary War. And the sermon that he preached was called uh, The Late Association for Defense Encouraged. But then it was re renamed The Lawfulness of a Defensive War Represented in a Sermon Preached at Philadelphia, December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1747. And I did forget to mention Gilbert Tennant is buried there too. They actually moved his tomb there, so it's a pretty neat place you can go. You can see graves there from the 16 and 1700s Revolutionary War soldiers. I want to just throw that in there before I make this point. But what Gilbert made with a get this sermon if you can and read it online. It's free online. It's really, really good. But here's what he says what a just war is. He said a just war is always undertaken by the magistrate meaning the civil government. It's not our duty to go out and say, we're declaring war, okay? And we have no right to do that without a magistrate above us. Now, if, if the United States, you know, let's say broke up or whatever, not even broke up, let's just say they made um, uh, a law in the United States that they were going to uh, come into all the churches and, uh, and forcefully arrest every Christian, just because Christianity is now being outlawed. Should we obey that? No, we have to obey God. However, if one of the magistrates, this is called the doctrine of the lower magistrate, in New Jersey, a, a mayor, a governor, or whatever, was, was saying, hey, we, we need to change this, and he was the one that declared a lawful uh, act of defense to stop that from happening, then we would be able to partake in that from a biblical perspective. So that's um, the doctrine of, in a, in a very small soundbite, the doctrine of the lower magistrate. But ultimately, it's got to be the civil government that does this. And secondly, a view to justice and peace. In other words, you're trying to institute justice, you're trying to, to maintain peace. Invasion for harm, restricting freedom or captivity. And of course, what we're talking about is self-defense, ultimately. So by defending yourself, and by Nehemiah defending himself and telling people, go and fight for your families and your children and, and your houses and all that stuff, that's a biblical thing for him to say. Okay, he was acting as a magistrate here. And he was under... Uh, um, the, uh, he had a, a decree from the king of Persia that he was able to be there. And that's why I had, well, we, we had Chris read this morning Hebrews eleven thirty two 32 to 34. And he talked all about, what more should I say? Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon. These are all warriors. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, who by faith conquered kingdoms 
performed act of right, acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, and so forth and so on. So God wants us to take a stand. You know, it's a, it's a great thing that Roe v. Wade was overturned, right? But that was something that didn't just happen overnight. It happened, and whether or not how it's going to play out, and I, and I know it doesn't solve the problem of abortion, but how this played out was because of Christians taking a stand. Christians saying no. They, they, well, it wasn't war, right? We didn't fight, but it would have been wrong to do that. But we were doing it to defend and protect the unborn, protect human life. Amen. Yes. And, you know, that's why we made the movie Voiceless. People used to say, well, what's it about? I say, oh, it's a, a, about a, a pro-life movie. I said, not really. It's a, about a movie about someone who took a stand, took a stand for God. And that's what we have to do as kingdom builders is we must take this stand for the Lord. We have to go to him first and completely entrust the battle to him. We have to go out and lead other people like Nehemiah did. Again, put yourself as Nehemiah as a Christian, right? He went out and he rallied people up. He rallied them. He encouraged them. He said, God is an awesome God and he will fight for us. This is the attitude we have to have, an attitude of optimism. I don't like, uh, you know, I don't see a pessimistic uh, doctrine in the Bible. I see God working towards renewing everything in the new creation and using us to do that. That to me is positive and optimistic. Are we going to have persecution? Yes, Are we going to have setbacks? Yes. But look at this. Would anyone ever think Roe v. Wade would be overturned? I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. Now we have to take a stand in our states. We have to tell them this is wrong. Most state constitutions mention God and Jesus Christ as the ultimate uh, lawgiver. If you look up up, uh, our constitution... And so that's a great thing for us to go. Go down to the, go down to the state house and say, wait a second, isn't, what does this mean? You know, we need to make abortion illegal everywhere. And then we need to continue to take a stand against that because even then that's not going to stop sin and those types of things. But as a believer, you have every right because Christ is king to take a stand. Just like Nehemiah had every right to take a stand here because he had the king tell him, the king of Persia, that it was... But our king is ruling on the throne. And that trumpet, when we hear that last and final trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, and then the trumpet, in, in, which is associated with the rapture, these are things that are the, the same passage Paul's talking about here. That at the end, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we will be changed and Christ will return. And that trumpet means that he is coming, what? For victory. He's won the war. And he's going to finish it and seal the deal. Jesus fought the greatest battle ever. Jesus is our ultimate example. He died on the cross. He fought a battle at the cross. He fought a battle in his life. Going through, knowing that he was where he was headed, stayed faithful to God as he was. He was fully man and fully God. 
So he humbled himself and he, and, he, and he put his eyes on the cross and he said, that's where I'm going to go. I love what Mike Stockwell said here last week. He preached here and he said, we don't know. I mean, this is, again, not novel, but we don't know how much time we have left. And I just said to Mike uh, on the side, I said, Mike, you know, God has called you to singleness and he's, and, and he's so excited about that. He says, Pat, I just want to take what I have and give it to the Lord, the time I have left, and fully rely on him. And I I said, simple stuff like that really ministers to me, right? I said, that's exactly what it's got to be. But it's not an easy ride. We have to get out there and take a stand. And we have to do, and again, we're following in the, uh, the example of not only Nehemiah, but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, dying for the sins of his people. Just as says in Isaiah 52, 14, just as many were, at, uh, were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man in his form, more than, more than any of the sons of men. You know, Nehemiah, his name actually means the Lord comforts. The Lord comforts. <clears throat> so what I'm trying to say, where do we hear about, where, where did we hear about the comforter, right? In John 15, where Jesus says, I am going to send the comforter, or John 16, maybe, I'm going to send the comforter. He will be with you. He will guide you. This is what God promises us as we go against our enemies. He's there to comfort you. But you have to, you, you, you have to trust fully. You have to trust with a complete reliance on the result. And then you have to still get into the fight. Get into the fight. Father, thank you for being our everything. God, I, I pray that this message was pleasing to you, and I pray that you will impress it upon our hearts, Lord, to, to read further and, and to discover more uh, about this man, Nehemiah, in this book, Lord, as we go through it. Father, I pray that you would save any here, Lord, any here that are yours, that you would bring them to salvation, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, and that you would give them a clear picture of the kingdom, Lord, and what you have for them. Before time began, Lord, you've created each of us here with a specific, valuable purpose in your plan to build and to renew all things and make all things new. And so, Lord, we go before you uh, with that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.